Welcome to Hospitality Forward. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president and founder of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning public relations agency specialized in hospitality and travel. We love storytelling and building national and global brands for spirits, cocktail bars, restaurants, hotels, and destinations. And I'm Michael Ann Stendig, editor-in-chief at Hannah Lee Communications and a food and beverage writer. This podcast is for hospitality and travel professionals who want to learn how to earn the media spotlight. As a journalist myself and Hannah as a PR professional, we understand the power of media coverage and its positive impact on someone's career and business. That's why we're undertaking this Giving Back to the Community initiative. So tune in every week to hear us interview top journalists who share their insights and tips. Hannah and I are also the authors and producers of our agency's first book, The Japanese Art of the Cocktail, which is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores nationwide. Actually, it was just rated the best book of 2021 by Barnes & Noble. Each week, we give away a copy of The Japanese Art of the Cocktail to our listeners, so please share a pitching tip you found most interesting from our episode and email us at info at hannaleecommunications.com. That's I-N-F-O at H-A-N-N-A-L-E-E communications with an S dot com. And remember to have hospitality forward in the subject line for a chance to win a book. In this episode, we're delighted to chat with Kevin Sintemong, Esquire's Culture and Lifestyle Director. Kevin oversees food and drink coverage, including the magazine's Best New Restaurants in America and Best Bars in America lists, among other subjects. Kevin earned his stripes at a 10-year stint at GQ and also worked at the Wall Street Journal and WS Magazine. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here and good to, good to see your faces as always. Good to see you as well. Absolutely. So, Kevin, could you tell us how you got into journalism? I, I always liked writing and uh, I was always encouraged to write from like, you know, a very young age. Uh, I had a lot of great English teachers. And um, so I ultimately I ended up going to school for writing. You know, I went to Johns Hopkins University uh, in Baltimore. Uh, initially, I'd, I'd gone to sort of study poetry, and then uh, a wonderful English teacher I had at the time kind of pulled me over uh, and just had did like real talk with me. She was like, "Kevin, you don't really need to study poetry to become a poet." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." Uh, and so I kind of just shifted into um, into journalism, and I loved. I just really loved magazines, and I just you know. Did did the internship thing while I was in in college? You know, I interned at I interned at Conde Nast Traveler, I interned at GQ, and that's kind of how I got my start. And then it's, the nice thing with poetry is that it's like definitely don't consider myself a poet at all. But it it's sort of with magazine writing, you have to pack so much information in such like little space. So it's in in a way, it, a lot of those poetry skills I kind of use that kind of economy of words. Uh, is is super important with uh, when it comes to magazine journalism. So you recently wrote a very moving first-person essay for Esquire. Uh, you described growing up in New Jersey and working in your parents' Thai restaurant and your decision to pursue your own career path as a journalist rather than join the family business. And 
you know, as the son of a hardworking immigrant father who wanted me to become a lawyer, I completely related to, uh, you know, the, the struggles there. So what prompted you to write the essay? And, you know, do you see a memoir in the works? I mean, it was such a riveting read. The, the, how that story came about was pretty interesting. We, uh, you know, I have like weekly check-ins with a lot of our staff and, and our, our editor-in-chief, uh, Michael Sebastian. And we were just kind of, I was just telling him about how I was spending more time uh, with my parents during, you know, this COVID era for a number of reasons. I, you know, they were, they were still going into the restaurant and working, and I was kind of concerned about that. So I wanted to be around them. I wanted to help them out at the restaurant, like back in the day. And he was like, oh, you used to work at a restaurant like when you were a kid? I'm like, oh, yeah. It's like, you know, since I was old enough to like wash dishes and then like, you know, uh, I hit puberty pretty early. And they, that's when I, I, I uh, looked old enough, I became a waiter. And, um, and then I managed the restaurant before, you know, I was sent off to college uh, for summer. And he was like, oh, he's like, whoa, that's a crazy story, man. And so he was like, you should write about it. And I was like, oh, really? You think that's that interesting? You know, I told other people the story and it's a very, I don't want to say typical, but it, it, it's uh, other people have experienced the same thing. Other immigrant families, whether it's like working in a bodega, working in a dry cleaner, uh, working at a restaurant, especially. Um, so like growing up where your parents worked was kind of part of, of this American experience, very American experience that wasn't really told. So we, we really kind of leaned into that. And like you said, Michael, I think that the other kind of universal aspect of the story is the idea of like, do I do what my parents want me to do? Or do I become like, you know, the self-actualized person that they want me to become and do whatever, I, you know, become a poet, right? Uh, but then there comes a point where it's like, you know, my parents were thinking about their legacy. Would I like it better if 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 Kevin had taken over the restaurant or or do I we really want him to become a doctor or an economist of which I did not become, even though I you know went to Johns Hopkins. So. <laughs> well, actually, my parents want me to be a professor at a university, but I didn't pursue that, you know, and I'm very happy where I am. And now they are celebrating my journey as a, you know, public relations professional. That's the thing you got, you got to, you have to kind of, uh, I mean, this is just sounds, I just, I'm just filled with like hallmark platitudes here, but you kind of just have to follow your heart and not really care about sort of what other people think or want for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now let's talk more about Esquire. So what should we know about it? And what sets it apart from other men's interest publications? Yeah, you know, it's basically anything that affects men's lives. We're going to talk about it. That's anything from cars to style to food and drink to uh, health and wellness um, to just like great stories that are worth telling. We, we care about service journalism a lot. And we, we take it super, super seriously, whether that comes to style or sort of food and drink. As a reader, you, or, or when, I tell, when you tell people like you're, you're a food and drink editor or, or, or a style editor, people think that it's like, it's just sort of all fun. It is fun, uh, but it is hard work and like deep research and passion. And I think that kind of comes across in the pages of Esquire 
uh, I hope that comes across because that that's the kind of like the the secret sauce to everything. Beautiful voice and passion. I love it. So after 88 years, how does Esquire stay relevant and engage the next generations? I mean, it's the same thing that they that that I think we've always done. It's it's about having your kind of finger on on the pulse of the culture. You know, there's a bunch of media platitudes about meeting the reader where they are, you know, so it's like, you know, engaging with them on social and on Facebook and Instagram. But it's also about sort of experiential things, too. We, we haven't been sort of been doing that in the past two years. But, uh, you know, getting into the event space, our, our, our Taste of Two Cities event, where we have two chefs sort of collaborate on our best of restaurants, collaborate and do a dinner. You know, that's that's one way I could count as as innovating, uh, where it's sort of you know, beating the people that, that we're writing about in the pages. So what would you say makes an Esquire story an Esquire story? Oh, um, you know, I, this is a lame answer, but you kind of know it when you see it. Let, let's, let me tackle this, the question this way. Like what makes me say yes to a pitch and what makes me so, say no to a pitch, right? I think it, need, it needs to have a, a very unique POV. It has to have interesting characters. I think that there needs to be sort of a surprising narrative that sort of will uh, propel the story. And this is, I mean, that sounds more like a what you would think of as an Esquire feature, but in many ways that's applicable to even the kind of service journalism that we do. I think if you look at our best new restaurants list or best bars list, there's narrative in that. There are characters in that. And I think that's what makes those lists like crackle in a way that, you know, other lists that you might find on the internet I can definitely see that uh, in the stories. So can you tell our listeners how you became the culture and lifestyle director at Esquire and what it took to get there? That, isn't that the, the most fancy sounding title you've ever heard? Um, <laughs> I can't believe they said yes to that. You know, uh, Basically what it means is that I cover everything except for sports and politics. You go into the idea of passion. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely passionate about a lot of things. Right. And so I'm passionate about food and drink, about cars, about design, about hotels, about travel, hospitality, in addition to music, uh, TV, movies and and sort of men's lives. You know, uh, I like talking to you about becoming 40 as a man or 50 as a man. I love digging into kind of the nuances of just being in this world. Right. And that's yeah. And that's what, how, why I have this kind of weird job where I can write, you know, interview Zack Snyder or like Taika Waititi one day, and then like talk to David Byrne another day, or, you know, cultivate our best new restaurants and best bars lists a, a month later. Uh, and I, I love that because I really do enjoy talking to all these people and, uh, and, re- and telling their stories. Let's drill down a little bit more about the editorial process at Esquire. So from brainstorming concepts to greenlining stories, how does the magic happen? It's a multiple ways, right? So it's like we receive a lot of pitches. Uh, I like to have a sort of small group of writers that I can kind of go to to sort of cultivate and come up with ideas. Let's say something happens in the news and I want sort of a, an original take on it. We'll kind of workshop an idea and, and come up with the right take. Um, a lot of ideas, a lot of magic happens just through kind of natural conversation. I've, I've been in this business long enough to to know that the best ideas happen, you know, just the just casual conversation at, at the office or on Zoom. 
or at the bar. Yeah. So you guys created a lot of buzz with uh, the list of the best new restaurants in America. And like many folks, we've been waiting for the list all year. And I know you and the team work tirelessly and literally travel thousands of miles to spotlight these incredible restaurants. So could you walk us briefly through the process from start to finish? For example, you know, when do you start researching the list? When during the year do these visits take place? You know, what was it like negotiating a pandemic along the way? The reporting feel honestly, it feels nonstop. I've been eating out like two or three times a week since the last list closed, working on next year's list. You know, it's a, it appears in our winter issue. Uh, it closes around sort of September timeframe. Sometimes it goes into October. So the the big flurry of reporting happens probably in the summer. Although this past September was super super busy for us because we care we care about the list. We want to cover as much ground as we can, and so we'll hear about places uh, at, at kind of the last minute, and so we'll go out to. Um, to these cities, you know, September, we're on the road, I'd probably say like, you know, I was on the road, probably 75% of those days. You know, it's that kind of final 10% that can make the list super special. So what's, what's the criteria for including a restaurant on the list? What, what are you looking for? You know, I think the easy answer is it's, is it's a place that you want to tell everyone about. It's a place that you want to go back to. The the sort of more complicated answer is, is this place sort of accomplishing what it's setting out to do and how well is it accomplishing that, right? Whether it's, you know, like at, uh, like at Cadence, whether, whether it's, ex, you know, an expression of soul food in like kind of a vegan manner, uh, whether it's a place like ever that's about this kind of high wire uh, culinary act. And then it's, it's sort of, you know, like, like with anything else, you know, we're, we're looking for kind of compelling narratives and sort of awesome experiences that, uh, we think that our readers would be into. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I hope that people can go to all of the restaurants on our list and have a good time. It's very subjective. I mean, I get mostly get notes that saying that in agreement with stuff, but occasionally you'll get stuff that's, that's in disagreement and that's okay. It's a subjective list. Uh, we have art, you know, uh, among the, the four people that uh, reported this, this year, myself, Jeff Gordonier, Joshua David Starr, and Omar Mamoun, the amount of like discussion and arguments that happen that we have over text is, is just, it's incredible, you know, uh, but that's, that's what makes the list interesting. You know, the four of us have very similar tastes, but we also have a uh, very strong um, POVs as well. I mean, I can definitely see the variety uh, on the list, and we are so excited to see our client Cadence was on the list. Yes. And not to mention, Chef Shinari Freeman crowned Rising Star of the Year. Yes, I yes. mean, we couldn't be happier and prouder. There was an incredible achievement for Robbie and Chef Shinari. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's wonderful, you know, what Robbie has done with his mini empire and how they're all uh, vegan. And I think Shinari is, is doing really, uh, is such a gracious host and such a, such a talented, talented cook. And that, that fried lasagna dish, it is truly the stuff of dreams. It truly is. Right? No yeah. question. Is it just the dish that you want to, go back to eat, but then you want to tell your friends about it. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about something boozy 
namely Esquire's Best Bars in America list. So what's the process for this list being compiled and what are the criteria? Is it similar to the restaurant criteria? How does it work? Yeah, and then what's the timeline looks like? Yeah, it's it's a it's I'd say it's a similar criteria. I think with best bars, I like to have um, more contributors to it. I think it's just an opportunity to really have different points of view when it comes to sort of bars in America. Um, that that's also something we report throughout the year, and we try to have a good mix of new places. And that's, I think that's how the list is really different from Best New Restaurants. It's right there in the name of the franchise. It's new. Best Bars is just Best Bars. And with Best Bars, we're just really trying. It, it's a little, um, it's subjective, of course. But we're, you know, at the same time, uh, even though it's not like Best New Bars, we're trying to capture the zeitgeist of what's happening in bars in America uh, each year. And I know everybody in our industry is like looking forward to that issue every year, yeah. and including us. Yeah. And we, and we take that, you know, um, I mean, we take best new restaurants super seriously. We take best bars uh, just just as seriously. You know, I think with the reporting for this last list, we hit the road in a pretty significant way um, towards the end just to make sure that we could cover and make up for the time that we lost when when places were closed. Speaking of stories in 2022, what kind of stories will you be working on? And what is your lead time for prints as well as online? Yeah, you know, I mean, online can be anything from if there's something relevant to the day, we can work on it and get get it up in a few hours. Usually the stuff that I work on uh, is usually a few days to a few weeks, depending on on the length and and sort of ambition of the story. Uh, For print in general, it's uh, three months ahead of time. And that's, I think, the way it is with, with most magazines these days. Uh, but, you know, as, as, as we, we know that we need to be nimble. And so um, some stuff we can we can weave in in later periods in the production cycle. Uh, and I think that helps with trying to um, keep the magazine relevant while it's on newsstands. With um, hospitality and travel industry coming back, will you be expanding your coverage on both subjects, hospitality and travel? Yes, we are indeed expanding our travel coverage in 2022 and so you'll see um travel coverage uh monthly in print it'll it'll take a while to sort of um get the engine started up but you should start seeing it uh at least weekly uh on the site as well you know we'll have a big travel package in uh in april look at our april may issue for a lot of uh, fun travel stuff from us if someone has a like some really exciting food and drinks destination suggestion, would they be able to pitch you within the next few weeks for your April issue? Oh, absolutely, yes. And you know, in addition to twenty, so we are doing. Uh, we'll, we always do um, uh, best bars and best new restaurants. This next year will be our fortieth uh, um, best new restaurant, so we'll be celebrating that anniversary and doing something special with that. Um, I think it's safe to tell everyone that we we are working on a um, best new hotels list, and so we will be um, that will be for our in our April May issue. So if anyone has any um, recommendations for great new hotels, please please do reach out. You guys do some great profile pieces. We really enjoyed the uh, Kate Nelson story on Chef Sean Sherman in Minneapolis. So what kind of folks do you look to spotlight? During the pandemic, we had wonderful stories from. Um, Omar Tate. That was about um, how the government just wasn't really 
helping folks who were doing pop-ups or didn't have like a traditional brick and mortar uh, restaurant. You know, we had a, a great essay uh, or as told to Sarah Rents worked on it with uh, with Chef JJ Johnson with with what he was doing with field trip and 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 helping hospitals and, and community outreach. Um, so we're we're looking we're just looking for really compelling narratives that perhaps you're not seeing elsewhere, and and especially with the food world, I think that you know our bread and butter is is more I would say sort of the lists and and the kind of service journalism aspect of food, but I think that we try to sort of lend lend our platform to voices in the community as well. Taking us back to what you said about what makes Esquire story an Esquire story, you mentioned voice and passion. And I think these profile stories are exactly that. Yes. So now let's get practical. I know a lot of people, including our clients, dream of being in Esquire. What kind of advice can you give to our listeners who'd like to pitch their stories to you? I think you have to have a very well-formed story. I like stories with a lot of heart. Um, I like humor, too. You know, it's it's sort of the basic stuff, and there needs to be a kind of beginning, middle, and end. There, there, There needs to be something very compelling to it. There has to be universality to it, but also sort of a uniqueness as well. You know, and there needs to have that kind of crossover, uh, so to speak. I mean, that's very vague. But I, I think if you take sort of my sort of growing up in a family restaurant story, you know, the, the, it's it's very specific to me, but it's also universal um, things that even if you're not like me, you can, it'll affect you in a way. So we call our podcast Hospitality Forward because we're very upbeat about our industry. So what person or organization have you seen really innovating lately and moving hospitality and travel forward? That's easy. It's uh, Yannick Benjamin at Contento. And Contento is a restaurant slash wine bar in Manhattan. In, in uh, I believe it's in East Harlem. It's a wonderful space and um, wonderful wine list, awesome food, but it's, really, it's built around accessibility around wheelchair access or, or if blind. Um, Yannick is really at the forefront of making people in the hospitality industry think about what hospitality really means. Because if someone shows up at your hotel, at your restaurant, at your bar, who is in a wheelchair or has a, a seeing eye dog, are, are they going to have a good experience? I think it's such a thoughtfully curated restaurant, both concept, but also design. Yeah. We give a big applause to what he has created. Yeah. yeah. And Yannick's a wonderful gentleman. I mean, you can nerd out with wines for him for, for hours too. It's a, it's a really wonderful spot to hang out in. You have traveled all over America this year. So what is your dream destination abroad for business or personal and why? I really want to go to Mexico City because uh, I've never been to... Here, I'm going to tell you a secret. I've, it's not now. It's not a secret though. I've never been to Mexico City, and whenever I tell people that I've never been to Mexico City, they're like, "What?" It's like you would love Mexico City. You, your Mexico City is all about you, and so I apparently I need to go there. It's wonderful uh, food culture there, uh, so definitely want to visit there. But I, I'm, I'm really, uh, I want to go back to Thailand to uh, visit my family. I haven't seen them in, in quite some time. And I really love, I mean, this is kind of a cliche answer, but I really love Tokyo. 
my credit card uh, takes some heavy damage when I'm there because I, I spend most of my time in Tokyo eating, drinking, and shopping. I, I'd like to have some uh, kind of new inspiration in addition to a new wardrobe. So We know you love cocktails, just like Michael and me. Yes. So if you had to choose one cocktail, what would be and with whom and why? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I have so many friends. If, uh, I I can make friends with whoever's at the bar. I don't even need to bring someone. I let's just so uh, I make I make I feel like I make very easy travel friends. So that's the thing when you when you kind of like have to eat and drink for a living. You a lot of times you're just doing it alone, and so you just make quick and fast friends with whoever's uh, at the bar. So uh, my best buddy is just sort of the general idea of like a wonderful person at the bar that I can have a conversation with, and the bar would probably be. I don't know if this is the best, but this is the one that comes to mind uh, because I, I went there recently, and it would be the uh, the Jewel Sazerac at Jewel of the South in New Orleans. Because I don't know if you've had this Sazerac before, but it is a mind blowing Sazerac. It's undiluted. It's it's like just chilled straight out of the bottle, kind of like the Duke's Martini, and um, it's a dangerous drink. <laughs> yes, it is very potent. You only want one in that that's going to be your sazerac for the day you know but it's that's the the wonderful thing about that drink is that it's so ice cold uh and you can sip on it for an extended period of time and have have a really wonderful conversation with someone absolutely so before we wrap up kevin what's the best way for our listeners to reach you you can reach me on email it's probably the easiest and that's uh just k sintamon at hearst.com where i think i think i have my email listed on my Twitter page too, if people really. Um, What's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's it, my Twitter handle is my last name. So it's S-I-N-T-U-M-U-A-N-G. Great. Well, this is such a thoughtful and really great conversation. And thanks again for what you do for our community. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure to chat with such a thoughtful and always curious journalist. Now that you know what Kevin is looking for, please feel free to reach out to him and introduce yourself. And don't forget to mention that you heard him on our podcast. We have a lot of exciting media guests in the pipeline, so please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. Please leave a review and tell your friends and colleagues who you think would benefit from the tips our journalist friends share on our show. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together. <laughs>